Mike Trout crushes one. He's staring that one down. Wow, number 40 for the three-time MVP, Mike Trout. He went from 0 3-2, 4-52 distance for Trout. Wow. Oh, my, 110.6 exit velocity. Shohei Otani's got a smile and go, wow. Mike Trout covered that one. 40th home run. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and researcher at MLB.com, joined by MLB.com national content editor Matt Myers. Today is Thursday, October 6th, 2022. And we always do our show on Thursdays, but this one makes a lot more sense because it's is a one day off between the regular season and the playoffs. We have four wildcard series starting tomorrow on Friday, and we are going to break down each one of them. It's actually a funny time to be doing this because managers are giving press conferences right now, and we're like watching Twitter, and there's going to be some real-time reactions here. Before we get to each of the four wildcard series... We should at least take a minute to look at what happened in the last couple of days of the regular season because there's some pretty big stuff. I don't know if you noticed this. Aaron Judge hit a lot of homers. He hit 62 home runs this year. And so one of our listeners, um, I'm now I'm blanking. I'm almost sure his name is Alex, and I might be confusing him with our podcast producer, Alex. So sorry, Alex's. He said, hey, didn't you or Matt actually call this? on the news and I was like huh I gotta go back and look so I did I went back and I listened to some shows from over the summer and wouldn't you know Matt Myers called this directly hold on a second pause we're, we're gonna roll that audio just for a second here all right prediction time I think he's gonna get to 59 heading into that Texas series and he's not gonna homer the first day and he's gonna hit 60 during that doubleheader and the final game of the season Wednesday October 5th in Texas Everyone's going to be talking about, you know, Dane Dunning or John Gray or whomever is starting that day, if they're even going to throw him strikes. And I think that's going to be exciting. Where are you? I think he's going to get to, I mean, I think he's, I think he's going to hit 62. That's my prediction. I don't know how he's going to get there. I think he's going to hit 62 on the nose. All right. I hope he does. Matt, that was two months ago. That was awesome. (laughs) You know, Matt Viscursion was getting all the props when he predicted that Albert Pujols would hit 700 on a Friday night in L.A., so I should be getting the same kinds of plaudits that Manifest Kershner is getting. Um, perhaps not, because my I had, he did it like four months in advance, and I did it like six weeks in advance. But you know what? I'll take the credit. For the record, I don't think that was Matt Veskirchen. I think that was a different Evelyn Network host. I think it was like Greg Amsinger or somebody. But also, I don't actually remember. Um, here, here's, like, I'm so honestly exhausted of talking about Aaron Judge. The only last thing I want to say about it is I'm so happy he got to... 62 and didn't end up stuck on 60 or 61 because that would have been interminable. Like he he got to 62, all-time record for the American League, broke like a historic Yankee record, so many home runs. It's super cool. And yet I keep thinking, so there were four teams that won 100 games this year, Dodgers, Houston, Braves, Mets. The Yankees were not one of them. Imagine telling ourselves that in like May. <laughs> the four teams are going to win 100, not going to be the Yankees. Um I guess it kind of depends on your perspective there. Like 99 wins and winning a difficult division is a successful year. Getting a bye is a successful year. Does any Yankee fan feel like it's a successful year? That's a good point about the tough division because, you know, both the both the Mets and the Braves who won 101 games got to play a lot of games against the Nationals 
and the Marlins and the Yankees did not have a team like that that they got to play a lot in their division. So in some ways, the 99 wins, you could argue, was even more impressive because they didn't get all those games against two of the worst teams in baseball. Yeah, obviously, we'll get to the teams that have the buys more next week, but I did want to pass along an interesting fact I found about the Dodgers. So 111 wins. Insanely good, right? 334 runs in terms of outscoring their opponents, largest since the 1939 Yankees. But here's the funniest one to me. They were 54-27 and at home. They were 54 and 27 on the road. That's not meaningful or anything. It's just, it's stunning to me. It could be, they're exactly as good at home and on the road. And I saw this note from a Dodger team historian, Mark Langell. On September 25th, the Dodgers set an MLB record for most victories in a 1,000 game span since the expansion era began in 1961. So uh, as of that date, uh, 636 wins over 1,000 games, surpassing 635 wins by the Braves, between 1993 and 2000. I went and I looked at this in a slightly different way a couple weeks ago, and it was basically like the last time there had been a streak like this, like a sustained span of excellence in the regular season was, you know, the mantle, Yogi, Whitey Ford, 1950s Yankees, and before that, like prehistoric dinosaur baseball. And as I think we've talked about before, Matt, people don't respect it enough because there's one ring in a shortened season, and I don't think that they're going to get the respect that they've earned this year if they don't win this year's ring even though it's incredibly difficult because there's more rounds and excellent teams. I think that's fair. That's that's just the reality of the, of the, the, the modern baseball postseason structure. But uh, they do – the dominance has been – It's. I think it's. it's been underrated. We've said this on the show a few times. I think the Dodgers' dominance over the last decade has been underrated basically for that reason because of the expanded postseason. They have only – only won one World Series. I think most most fan bases would be excited to say, oh, we've only won one World Series in the last 10 years. But here we are. Uh, a couple more things I want to get to before we get into the playoffs. Um, oddly, there was like a ton of interesting things happening in yesterday's Angels-A's game, which had no impact whatsoever on anything. So Shohei Otani finishes his year, his first one ever to qualify for both the batting average and the ERA titles. We all know he's not going to win MVP. I don't want to have that argument, but he's had an incredible year. As a hitter, uh, you know, 34 homers, a 145 OPS plus, and actually took 666 plate appearances, which is an incredible amount considering he's also been pitching. As a pitcher, a 233 ERS, uh, ERA, uh, and 219 strikeouts in 166 innings. And there was this sort of funny subplot as the season went on where he just decided he was going to be an entirely different pitcher. He's a sinker slider guy now. Remember when he came up, his deadly pitch was his split finger, and he was throwing his four-seamer 100 miles an hour. Well, if you look at his sinker plus slider percentage, you know, in April and May, it was like 30%. In September, it's 65%. He just decided, hey, I'm going to be a different guy now, and I'm going to be great at that. And I just sort of assumed next year he's going to show up throwing left-handed, and he's going to be good at that too. The other thing that came out of that game, Mike Trout hit a 490-foot home run, 40 homers in 119 games. (laughs) wasn't it like 10 minutes ago there was a story about oh he's got a potentially career derailing back injury he might not be the same and what did he end up doing another mike trout here he almost nailed his career averages in ops and ops plus and nobody paid attention because the angels once again didn't win anything i i don't know what more trout could do other than stay healthy I guess uh, next year's Angels are going to be a fascinating team because they probably won't have Shohei Otani. We, we we have plenty of time to talk about in the in the off season. I know. The last thing I just wanted to highlight a super cool moment from that game. Um, longtime catcher for the A's and a couple other teams, Stephen Vogt said he was going to retire. 
and his kids got to announce him on the PA system, you know, now batting the catcher. And it was his kid. That's super cool. I, I, Matt and I, are, I guess, are softies about these things since we have kids. And you can just like sort of imagine that. And then in his last ever played appearance, he hits a home run. Like, how cool is I that? I have two, two points I want to I make about that. First of all, we should play the vote audio right now or vote kid audio right now because it was amazing. Amazing, as we said. I played that for my kids this morning. They absolutely loved it. They thought it was the coolest thing. Second, and this is, I posted this on Twitter last night. I don't really post on Twitter anymore because I wanted to share this because 15 years ago when I was covering college baseball, I interviewed Stephen Vogt when he was at Azusa Pacific University, an NAIA school. He was like an All-American. He was like the best player in NAIA, but obviously no one really knew he was because it's like pretty obscure college baseball. I interviewed him, and that week he had just gotten engaged to his girlfriend at the time, who was a player on the Azusa Pacific basketball basketball team. We interviewed him; it was very sweet. Um, we interviewed her; it was very sweet. She told the story of how he had like asked for his parents and her parents' hand in marriage, and like he did this whole romantic proposal. And I figured I interviewed the guy; I would never hear from him again. So to see him go on to have a major league career, and not only that, to have the the like the final, you know, like bow tie of like his family with the woman who he had proposed to in that interview be there on the last day for me personally it was very cool to see he's had an amazing career he's one of the most seems to be like one of the most well-liked guys in baseball you hear his name come up as like a future manager i feel like we will be hearing about Stephen vote in a in a coaching or managerial capacity for years to come yeah, that or, or broadcasting, for sure. I'm trying to hit some teams we're not going to talk about for six weeks here. Uh, the Royals fired Mike Matheny, and uh, their manager, and their pitching coach, Cal Eldred, which was mostly interesting to me because when they let Dayton Moore go, all they did was kind of promote his top lieutenant. And so you sort of wondered, is this really going to be a change of pace or is it just going to be more of the same? I think this tells you a little bit about the fact that they really are I- invested in making major changes. And what I read was that um, because they're, they're relatively new owner, used to be a minority owner in the Cleveland Guardians uh, franchise. He sees the success that Cleveland has had and how much Cleveland has basically taken it to the Royals and said, well, what are they doing that we're not? And I think that starts in pitching, obviously, because Cleveland churns out pitchers. And the Royals have actually done okay with with batters. Like my man, Vinny Pasquantino, had a great year, stole a base. Pitching hasn't gone that direction. So I, I thought that was an interesting step forward without even knowing who's going to replace them that it's not just going to be more of the same, which I think they desperately need there. I have one more question for you. Who, uh, I guess this implies that I'm making you do a World Series prediction, which I didn't mean to. Who's going to face the last shift in Major League Baseball history? I was thinking about this, right? We know the rules are coming into effect next year. Who is going to be the last guy to ever face? I have an idea, but I want to know what you're going to say. My guess is going to be Matt Olson. Okay, I like that. I was thinking about this, and before the season, my World Series prediction was Blue Jays-Dodgers, and I'm not sure that's actually who I would pick right this second, but you know, I'll stick with it since it's still active. And I think I picked the Blue Jays to win, which means the Dodger will have to make the last out, and that feels like Max Muncy to me. Max Muncy is going to face the last World's, the shift in baseball history, and he'll be so excited and never has to do it again, except this implies he will hit into the shift and it will end the World Series, <laughs> which maybe he won't be very happy about. We'll take a quick break. We're going to come back, and we're going to break down each of the four wildcard series on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimension podcast.
We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. The playoffs start tomorrow. There are four wildcard series. They all start tomorrow. There will be four games on Friday. There will be four more games on Saturday. Those It's a best of three. So on Saturday, those are decision games right there. We will see teams eliminated 48 hours from now. Obviously, some of those series will go on for one more day. We're going to start with the Padres and Mets series, which I find really, really interesting. Obviously, the Mets have been playing great. They couldn't hold on to the division. Um, this is going to be really fun. I, I was looking this up before, and I don't think I realized this to this extent. I know Juan Soto hasn't been great as a Padre. Do you realize he's the best hitter that City Field has ever seen? So the park opened in 2009. If you look at the list of best hitters there, and it's not a good hitter's park. It's actually a terrible hitter's park. Who've ever had 100 plate appearances. He has hit 350, 464, 709, an OPS of 1,173. As I've said before, I hate saying four-digit OPSs. No one else has even touched 1,000. And it's not like the Mets have had bad pitching during his career. <laughs> like the Mets have actually had pretty good pitching. That's maybe nothing. It's maybe small sample size fluke. Maybe he really sees the ball well there. You know, like he's he's not had that jump start you'd expect with the Padres, who have not really slugged at all. This could be just what he needs there. Or am I just making things up now? Well, I think I mean the the postseason is a bit of a reset. We see this all the time. Players will either have bad finishes to their season and come out guns blazing in the postseason, and vice versa. It's a reset. And as you noted, he hasn't had the jump start. But I actually think this is one area where the Padres have an advantage over the Mets because. I always think, you know, I think I say this every postseason. I think of postseason matchups, and I think of who are the players in your lineup that force the other team to change, force the other manager to change the way they're going to manage the game. And I think that the Padres have two of those players, Juan Soto and Manny Machado, and the Mets don't have anyone quite like that. Probably Pete Alonso's the closest thing, but he's not. Even Juan Soto, like even this bad Juan Soto, Every time he comes up front of the lineup, the quote-unquote bad Juan Soto, you're like, shoot, how are we going to get this guy out? Like, what are we going to do? Um, and I think that's meaningful in the postseason series, especially for a team like the Mets that doesn't really have – I mean, they have Edwin Diaz. Before that, they don't really have a reliable lefty, not to mention the three-batter rule. Um, and their right-handed setup men, Adam Adovino was terrible against left-handed hitters. Seth Lugo's pretty good. So it's like – that decision point of like, okay, how are we going to deal with Soto when he comes to, comes up in the lineup after his his first third and fourth plate appearances is going to be a really tough decision point, especially with Manny Machado coming up, you know, one or two batters right after him, and how you, which relievers are you going to choose and make these decisions for? And I think this is one area where the where the the Padres really have an advantage. Yeah, I really like the idea that bad Juan Soto is like a 135 OPS plus for the Padres. Like that's how high is the expectations are for him. The the thing that stands out to me about the Padres, I, I did not realize it was to this extent. They absolutely cannot hit velocity, right? So if you look at all pitches, 95 miles an hour plus second worst in slugging percentage ahead of only Detroit. And if you look at run value, which, you know, applies a run value to every single pitch, they are dead last. And if you look at the Mets, well, Jacob DeGrom throws pretty hard. Edwin Diaz throws pretty hard. Max Scherzer throws pretty hard. I guess, you know, Chris Bassett doesn't necessarily. Tywin Walker doesn't. Uh, but I think that is that is going to be a big problem for the Padres. If they can't hit velocity, they're going to be in trouble. Now, we know the Padres are likely going to start Darvish, uh, Blake Snell, and Joe Musgrove. Blake Snell, by the way, has been awesome in the second half. If you look at the second half's best starters, uh, second highest strikeout rate behind only Carlos Rodon's second highest fan graphs war behind only Zach Gallen. And part of that is he's, he's found velocity he had not had in years. So in September, his fastball was 96.3. The last time he threw it that hard was in September of 2018. 
which is a pretty big deal. And also, he's cut his walk rate in half from earlier in the year. So he is not the, I don't know, I mean, I guess he is, but the inconsistent Blake Snell we'd seen for a couple months, he looks like that guy is totally different. And on the Mets side, they still haven't totally confirmed who's going to start. I mean, Max Scherzer has to start game one. You'd think, okay, well, Jacob DeGrom's going to start game two. And yet there seems to be this theory in the air that maybe you save him. I'm not so sure about that. I feel like if you have Jacob DeGrom, you start him. This is floating out there, the idea, and it makes it, this is totally one of those, like, you know, stratomatic baseball ideas that makes perfect sense, which is essentially three-game series, and if you win game one, you don't need to win game two, in which case, knowing that you, theoretically, if you advance, you want DeGrom to start, you want DeGrom and Scherzer to start potentially three out of five games in the DS, you save them, hoping you win game two with Bassett, so that DeGrom is rested to start game one against the Dodgers and then also be available if it goes to five games. It makes sense. I don't want to say it's tempting fate to do. It just feels like if you have DeGrom, if you're up one nothing, you have DeGrom, you should try and put it away, right? Like just, especially what you just told me. I mean, the fact that you just told me about the, the Padres struggling with velocity, he's the guy on the Mets staff that actually is the plus velocity guy. Scherzer is, at this point, I think I talked about this on podcasts like a month ago, you know, his 95-mile-an-hour fastball is like, you know, 60th percentile in Major League Baseball right now, um, something like that. So I think – and this could also just be posturing. And also they could lose game one, in which case we'll never know what they would have done. So uh, I think they'll end up starting DeGrom in game two no matter what. But I guess we'll we'll have to wait and see. I think this series – and this go, going back to Snell for a second, you know, with the three-game playoff series, three games in three days – I'm very interested to see how teams set their rosters, and the Mets may have some of the most interesting decisions to make because, because of injuries, Starling Marte is going to be out. They don't. You know, Darren Ruff, Ruff has been terrible and may also be hurt. So it's like, okay, who's their right-handed DH? Because against lefties without Marte, their lineup looks a lot less imposing. And they brought up Francisco Alvarez, who was terrible in the Braves series, but then hit a couple of absolute like rockets against the the Nationals to make people realize, okay, this is why he's one of the best prospects in baseball. I think he'll be the DH, but you could also, if you really want to get aggressive, you could actually not carry James McCann and have Francisco Alvarez be your catcher and no have Ruff for Vien- <laughs> for Vientos. No. I'm just, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. Fine, you could, I mean, you could even carry James McCann and still have Alvarez start a catcher. Frankly, did he even get into any games? He did catch. As, he caught, he caught, he caught did, yesterday and he caught in okay. Monday one of the one of the games on earlier this week. Do you think that if Alvarez makes the roster, this will be the end of our annual? Is this guy eligible for the playoff roster? Or like <laughs> frenzy on September? I'm just saying, think, no, no one's. I think pe- I don't know. I think people have gotten pretty pretty wise to that. But anyway, that is all very interesting to me. Also, it, it probably could lead to Terrence Gore being on the roster, and the Padres are not very good at stopping uh, base runners. So, like, there's a lot there's a there's a lot of interesting roster subplots here. That's what I was going to say. The Padres actually have the worst caught stealing rate. In baseball, I forgot to tell you this was a rule that I'm just going to make up on the spot here. Clearly, we're going to do you know predictions here. Um, we cannot all four. We cannot both of us for all four of these series say it's going to go three. Something has to end in two. It doesn't have to be this one, right? But one of them, at least one of them, you have to say it's going to be a sweep because it's only you know best of three. Um, Mets in three for me. I am going to say Padres in three. Oh. Yeah, I, I already regret my choice, so <laughs> I think that's a good one. All right, our next nationally wild card, Phillies and the Cardinals. Uh, the Cardinals, as of like 20 minutes ago, had not announced any starting pitchers, so that was going to be a big thing to talk about. But 
as we started recording, they did. And it's really interesting. Would you believe the game one starter in the wild card for the St. Louis Cardinals is Jose Quintana, who has played for something like 700 teams in the last three years. And I know he's pretty good there. Like, I get that. It's going to be Quintana number one. It's going to be Miles Michaelis, number two. Number three uh, is TBD. So maybe Jordan Montgomery, maybe Jack Flaherty, maybe Adam Wainwright. Adam Wainwright has not pitched well, like at all. Apparently he's gone through this dead arm, which maybe he could back, you know, bounce back from. But in six September starts, a 722 ERA, 44 hits in 28 innings. He will be on the roster, I'm sure. But I think they're going to end up using all five of these guys. Like Flaherty is probably not super stretched out. He could be an ace reliever. I mean, their bullpen's actually really good, like quietly good. And now you're going to throw Flaherty and Wainwright potentially into that bullpen. That's a lot of fun. The fact that they're, I mean, if more than anything, this tells me they really, they're concerned about Wainwright. I mean, this is Adam Wainwright, like a franchise icon. And he has been good for most of the year. The fact that they're not pitching him, starting him in games one or two is like pretty telling to me. Jose Quintana and Miles Michaelis, that's like, Wow. I mean, I can't even, I mean, the best I can think of is that, you know, the two most imposing Phillies hitters are Schwarber and Harper, although Harper has not been good since coming off the IL, two left-handed hitters. So the thought is that maybe two times through the lineup, Quintana can at least neutralize those guys before you go to bullpen. I mean, there's no chance Quintana's pitching more than five innings, right? Four, maybe? No, I, I, this this has a piggyback situation like written all over. If, if you want old school pitching, but this is not where you're going to find it. You probably will for the Phillies because they're going to have likely Nola and Wheeler. The other thing with the Cardinals is uh, their outfield is kind of a mess right now. You know, for the last couple of years, it was like O'Neill and left and Bader in center and Carlson in right. Well, Bader got traded. O'Neill is out with a hamstring injury. He's probably not going to be on the roster. And Dylan Carlson cannot hit right-handed pitchers. Like, he's got huge splits. Um, you know, 845 OPS against lefties, 633 against righties. And the Phillies are likely to start Wheeler and Nola, who are both right-handed pitchers. So could their outfield in this series be Corey Dickerson in left, Lars Newtbar in center, and names I definitely didn't make up, Alec Burleson or Ben Deluzio in right? That feels like a lot to say they wouldn't have Carlson in the lineup at all if those are their choices. But this is not like the good, young, dynamic Cardinals outfield we're used to. I have no idea what direction they're going to go with this. On paper, it does not look great. Um, and the other thing I'm really interested to see is how they use pools. Because, you know, obviously down the stretch, he was red hot. At first, it was just against lefties. And then he was starting to hit righties, too. But then it was like also games, meaningless games against, you know, like the Pirates. And it was kind of unclear... Not that they were giving him cookies, but it just felt like it didn't really matter, and it was unclear exactly how much the Pirates pitchers were actually trying to challenge him. Now we're talking about postseason. I'm assuming he'd, he'd, he'd start against a lefty and probably uses a pinch hitter against a lefty, but, like, are they going to let him start against righties? Is he going to get at-bats against righties? Like, how different is he going to look in this situation where suddenly he's facing guys who can throw 99 who are really trying to get him out and pinpoint their stuff? If I know anything about how baseball works— I know that in what will potentially be his final games ever at Bush, if they don't win, there is no way he's not the starting lineup. There's not. There's also not like a great option otherwise. It's not like there's someone you're desperately trying to get in. There is no way he's not in the starting lineup. I cannot see that scenario happening. And, well, and hey, maybe maybe the the famed Cardinals devil magic with will. Um, oh man, will continue this October on the Philly side. The thing that I think is going to surprise a lot of people, and I mean the Phillies bullpen has been kind of a a mess for years, and they seem to actually have figured some things out during the middle of the season when Sir Anthony Dominguez was pitching well and they got David Robertson. Those guys have been pretty bad. Dominguez came off the aisle in September, has been terrible. 
Uh, Robertson's been just okay down the stretch, and they've started using Zach, Zach Eflin and Jose Alvarado, who, when he's on, looks absolutely— like, I don't know if there's a more feast or famine pitcher in all of the majors than Jose Alvarado. Like, when he's on, you're like, how does anyone ever hit this guy? And then there's the days where he, like, cannot find the strike zone. So you could have games where suddenly, like, Zach Eflin is closing games for the Phillies. I don't know what's going on. This, this, this series, I think, probably has, like, the most, like, weird baseball possibilities. Zach Eflin has um, victim of his own success written all over him here, right? So he he was an okay starting pitcher. He missed a bunch of time with, I believe it was a knee injury. He came back in September, seven games as a reliever, nine strikeouts, no walks, one earned run, and a huge velocity jump in his sinker. It was like 92.5 before. Well, then it was like 94. So if he takes advantage of this opportunity and the Phillies go on a run and he's a big part of that bullpen, he will never start another game in the major leagues. And hey, maybe that's fine. Maybe he's, I don't know, Andrew Miller or whatever. But you could easily see that being the direction this takes. So what what's your what's your prediction in this series? What 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 what's your take? I hate this one. I don't The Cardinals are a better team than the Phillies are. The Cardinals have a much better defense than the Phillies do. The Cardinals have a much better bullpen than the Phillies do. Harper is not playing well and you know, whatever devil magic you want to assign to Yadi and Pujols applies here. And yet I'm thinking about Zach Wheeler and Aaron Nola versus Jose Quintana. <laughs> My like list has actually been very good this year. Phillies in three. I guess this isn't, this isn't going to be my sweep either. Um, I think the Cardinals will win game one and three. I think Nola will win game two. I'll take Cardinals in three, likely with some sort of defensive mishap by the Phillies in game three. <laughs> Cause it costing them dearly. I appreciate that so far we are not like in lockstep here, that we are choosing different ones. But I mean, looking at that, that Cardinals outfield, I'm very tempted to pick the Phillies here. I really am. Yeah. But I think, you know, it, I, I just don't, between the bullpen and sort of the defensive miscues, I just don't fully trust them to close out a game on the road where they're playing a series on the road when they're playing all three series, on all three games on the road. I'm, I'm with you, but the, the starting rotation difference and the outfield difference. But then Harper's not hitting. I I made my choice. I'm not going back on it. But let's take a break. I'm going to come back and talk about the two American League series. back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Matt and I are going through each of the playoff series. We've made our decisions about who's going to win the National League. And we're going to go to the American League, where I think the one I'm the, the series I'm maybe most interested in watching, um, the Mariners and the Blue Jays. Like that's a really fascinating and fun collection of players on those teams. Like the Mariners are finally back in the playoffs, but it's not a home game. And you know, I, I feel like the Blue Jays deserve maybe not extra credit, but some recognition. You know, it's their first home game there since 2016 in the playoffs. And if you remember how much time they spent on the road over the previous two seasons, you know, Florida and Buffalo, I feel like uh, the fans are going to blow the roof off that place. Assuming the roof is closed, which I assume it will be because it's October. They are very different teams, I think, in the sense that it's kind of strength for strength almost. Like the Blue Jays have a huge advantage in lineup. I don't really trust the Mariners lineup that much. And I'm going to kind of get into some Cardinals-esque outfield issues they have. 
they both have very good starting pitching. There's not huge separation there, but the Mariners, I think, have a pretty clear bullpen advantage. It's like that's that you can set the stage right there. Like these teams are good at different things aside from the rotation. I kind of want to start with the Mariners real quick because their outfield is sort of a disaster right now. Uh, Jesse Winker, who's had a terrible season, might not have made the roster anyway, is out with a back issue. Uh, Sam Haggerty, who's been like a really useful, speedy, you know, defensively versatile player, injured himself on Monday. He's out for the postseason. Julio Rodriguez is available, but he just missed a bunch of time with a back issue. And when your healthiest outfielder is Mitch Haniger, who has a long history of health issues, that's not where you want to be. So they might have to start Jared Kelnick, who has famously flopped in every opportunity, except when he got called up on September 22nd, it sort of looked like he'd finished some, figured something out, right? First seven games, three homers. Great OPS. Well, in his last seven games is one hit. That is a .044 batting average uh you might be playing left field for the mariners a little bit in this series matt that's the weird thing about winker's season it was a huge disappointment but he still got on base at a decent enough clip that he actually had an above average weighted runs created plus which is kind of hard to believe <laughs> with brutal defense though like yeah awful but, but at least it was a bit of a known a bit of a known quantity like it was a huge disappointment but it was like okay at least there was a, there was a floor there and with Kelnick, the floor might be lower. Although this does, this, there's weird like Jared Kelnick redemption story, redemption narrative arc right here could very could very well be be in play. He might be the best. I mean, he seems like he's a, the best option they have. So especially against a right hand pitcher, so he's probably going to start. I I just figured out what I want to happen. Like all year, we've been kind of making jokes like, oh, in the NLCS, we'll get to see like Kenley Jansen versus Freddie Freeman on other sides. Mariners Mets World Series, Game Seven, Kelnick up against Edwin Diaz. We'll finally figure out who won the trade. <laughs> that would be that would be amazing. So yeah, I think that the the Mariners that lineup right now on paper looks a little, especially after it looks a little shady. And one thing about the, the Blue Jays that I think has kind of gone un, because Vlad's had a bit of a down year. I think what's gone unnoticed is how good their offense has been. Um, yes, they're, they're second to the Dodgers, only the Dodgers in all of baseball in Wade runs created plus. They've got like really good hitters up and down the lineup, even with Vlad having this like quote unquote down year. So it's been easy to kind of overlook how good that offense is. Um, but it's it's a really good, like a lot of, some mix of power, some like it's 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 good. And they're going to need it because the Blue Jays, I think, have not only a starting pitching advantage, but also, actually no, I don't take, I take it back. They, uh, yes, no, the Mariners have a starting pitching advantage and a bullpen advantage. Uh, yes, well they definitely have a bullpen advantage. And it's, it's almost like Cleveland in a sense where it's sort of anonymous. Like last year they had a good bullpen and it was Paul Sewell and a bunch of guys. And this year they have a good bullpen, but now it's Paul Sewell and a bunch of different guys. You know, like Matt Brash has been great. Andres Munoz has been fantastic. Like Eric Swanson, who was he part of the James Paxton trade? I think that's right. He's been very good. The, the thing about the Blue Jays, I don't tend to believe that players have different skills in the postseason as compared to the regular season. But I've also seen George Springer hit enough October home runs to know that that's not something I take lightly in his part. You know what I mean? Like, as you said, you know, Vlad has had a down year by his standards. Like, it's still been a very good year. Bo Bichette's been on fire lately. The, the questions that they have are uh, health to some extent. Lourdes Gurriel has missed time with a hamstring. He may or may not be available. Santiago Espinal has missed time with an oblique. He may or may not be available. Whit Merrifield's actually been really good. But it's hard for me to look at his last, like, 150 plate appearances as opposed to his previous like 1000 plate appearances so that's going to be a question i i do think of the four series this one has the likelihood maybe st louis i'm going to stick with this one of the four series this one's got the biggest home field advantage because i think the dome closed 
Blue Jays fans will sell that place out. I get that St. Louis will be loud, New York will be loud, Cleveland will be loud. I think I think this is the toughest environment for a road team to come to. I think that 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 might be right. So you know maybe for game one, just because of you know the 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 circumstances you you described. The reason why I think ultimately I'm going to pick the Mariners in this series is because I just don't fully trust Jordan Romano, the Blue Jays' closer, and I can't put my finger on it. It could just be that I've just happened to watch a few games where he's pitched poorly, and but I, you know I was kind of trying to dig into it. Like, what is it? He does have one of the worst hard hit rates in baseball, and there's just something, even though his other secondary numbers are good, it just feels like when I... He always seems to struggle when I watch him, and I just don't have a ton of faith in him. And that might not be fair because overall he's been very good this season and is considered a dominant closer. But that's just kind of my – in trying to make a pick in a three-game series, sometimes you have to kind of go with some of these intangible gut feelings. And for that reason, I will take the Mariners in three in this series. I'm going to go Blue Jays in three, partially because of the home field, but partially because I I think the offensive advantage they have over Seattle – might be larger than the bullpen advantage that Seattle has over Toronto. Now, the other thing with Toronto's bullpen is they don't they don't have a lot of lefties, like Tim Meza, right? But then otherwise, are you throwing like Yimi Garcia against lefties? But then also Seattle's lineup is so weak for the most part. Like Ty France has been very good, and Julio Rodriguez could probably single-handedly take over a series by himself if he's healthy. Uh, I, yeah, Blue Jays in three. I think that means we both have to pick a sweep for the next one, don't we? <laughs> okay. I, was plan- I was planning that all along, Mike. I don't know about yeah. you, so... All right, the last one, uh, Tampa Bay at Cleveland, the battle of no offense whatsoever. Neither of these teams have a very good offense. This is going to be almost like a, a, I think I've said this before, like on the Cleveland side, a religious and political like warfare here. Do you desperately want the contact hitting small ball team to win in the playoffs? Or do you actually think that won't work very well in the playoffs? I think this is maybe a good matchup for them because Tampa Bay doesn't also have that much of an offense right now, especially because they've got a lot of injuries themselves. Like Brandon Lau is not coming back. Uh, Kiermaier has been out and Sonino has been out and, you know, on the pitching side, Shane Baz and Colin Pochet are both out. But I think there's something to be said about the best player on the Cleveland offense, and that's Jose Ramirez, who I think has long been one of the more underrated stars and is probably going to finish top seven or so in MVP this year. He His season has taken such a weird turn. I know he drove in a ton of runs, so on the surface you might not notice this, but his OPS has dropped literally every single month of the season, right? He had a great, great April, very good May, down, 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 and suddenly in September at an OPS of 749 and a strikeout rate that was three and a half times what it was in May. And there's evidence that he's hurt. Like, I know that there's been a lot of talk about a thumb injury, and that's fine. Like, he's had such a great career. Like, you give him the benefit of the doubt. And can he, you know, pull together for three days? Like, sure. But if he's not Jose Ramirez, that what, that offense is, I don't know. I don't have a lot of confidence in it. So another way in which he has really struggled this year is against lefties. He's a switch hitter, and he's been much, usually he's been pretty steady, against, even against one of the few switch hitters who's basically very similar against righties and lefties. This year he's really struggled against lefties, a 200-point OPS difference of almost 200 points. And that actually is a big problem for the entire Cleveland team. Like They are, they are really, really not very good against left-handed pitching. I think they're 28th in OPS against lefties this year. The only teams worse are the Marlins and the A's. That is not company you want to keep. Um, and obviously it makes sense when you think about it. If you've got Ramirez struggling from the right side, and then their next best hitters are Josh Naylor, left-handed hitter, Andres Jimenez, left-handed hitter, Stephen Kwan, left-handed hitter. And lo and behold, in game one, they're facing maybe the best lefty in all of baseball this year in Shane McClanahan. Um, so, like, there isn't a, po- a worst possible matchup 
for the Guardians right now than for them to be facing Shane McClanahan in game one. And you know the Rays are smart, and they're going to do everything they can to weaponize that. And they have a bunch of interesting lefties, guys who, all the guys who've been starters this year, um, like uh, Josh Fleming, who might move into different roles because, like, they just want to get them in games. Because Tyler Glasnow's lined up to start game two, but, like, Glasnow's not going to pitch deep into a game anyway, so... It's, it could be a situation where Glasnow maybe turns over, you know, faces 15 batters, and then they turn it over to a lefty. Yeah, Jeffrey Springs is another lefty they had who's been fantastic. And um, Brooks Raley, too, out of the bullpen, is, like, quietly very good. I'm really, really interested to see Glasnow. You know, he, he came back, but only briefly. Two games, 26 batters faced, and he looked pretty good. Like, he looked more or less like Glasnow should. Uh, but, you know, it's a lot to ask after all that missed time to come back and try to, you know— Whatever you want to say negatively about Cleveland's lack of power, they make a lot of contact. Like, even for a guy as talented as Glasnow, it would be hard for him to miss bats, you know? And I think the uh, the Guardians have a pretty clear advantage, not only uh, on defense, but also on the bases. Because Tampa Bay runs into so many outs. Like, they, they cannot give away outs. Meanwhile, Cleveland runs all around the bases. So, I think this is a really interesting matchup. It's the best possible opponent, I think, that Cleveland should have had. Which I guess makes sense, because they got the sixth seed. So there you go. That's the way it's supposed to work. Um, Wander Franco has had a weird year, right? Got hurt. Wasn't that great for a while since coming back. Uh, 322, 381, 471 in 97 plate appearances. He has not had like the total breakout I think we all wanted him to have, but we know the talent's there. It could be fun if he takes a series over. For sure. I mean, the, the, the one downside of his performance thus far since he came back is he really hasn't any power, which is not surprising. He had a hammock injury, and usually hammock injuries are, affect your power a lot. But last year, he was like, the thing is, like last year in the division series, that was his breakout. You know, he, he hit two homers against the Red Sox. He almost, like, he was carrying the Rays in that series. And that was the, like, oh, my goodness, Wander Franco's here moment. This guy's going to be one of the superstars in baseball in 2022. That didn't really happen for a variety of reasons. But, yeah, I think he's, he's you know, in the proverbial X factor on the Rays side in the Rays lineup. And obviously, one of the more you know, he is one of the more dynamic young talents in baseball, and kind of has a chance to maybe rewrite the narrative on his season, similar to what we were talking about with Juan Soto before, where if he suddenly has a big postseason, people might forget that he's struggled and, and wasn't the player people expected over the course of the year. All right, I don't feel great about it, but I'm saying raise in two, and that's partially because now I'm obligated to pick somebody in two because I said I had to before. It's not that I think the Rays are that much better than Cleveland because I, I don't really. It's just if you look at the starting pitching. Um, Bieber versus McClanahan, I, I would be hard-pressed to say there's like an obvious edge there. Like, they're both excellent pitchers. And I think, as you mentioned, McClanahan really matches up very well against the Cleveland offense. And then in game two, like Tristan McKenzie's been great. But do I like, you know, four innings of Glasnow followed by lefties? Like, yeah, against this Cleveland team, I do. And I do think that, you know, the defense is an issue. Bullpen is very good for Cleveland, running the bases, Francona, all of it. I could be easily wrong on this. I, I think it's going to be in two, and maybe it'll be Cleveland. But I'm going to say Tampa Bay. This this series is interesting to me because you know there's you've written about this a lot over the years of just the idea of like home runs win in, in October. You know it's the easiest way to score runs. Turn you know, but neither of these teams hit homers. So it's like maybe whichever one hits like two homers versus one will be the difference. Like the I think the uh, the the Rays were 25th in home runs hit, and the Guardians were 29th. So you're not going to see a lot of home runs in this series. I've watched a lot of Guardians this year. I think they're a fun team. You know, Emmanuel Classe is maybe my favorite reliever in baseball. I'm big Andres Jimenez fan. I'm skeptical how this is going to play in the postseason. So I, I, I was already planning to pick the Rays in two all along. That was my, that was my pick because I think the, the, the McClanahan, like in terms of 
pitcher versus lineup matchups possible, the the Rays of all the series starting tomorrow, starting on Friday, have the biggest advantage because of the the lefty issue I mentioned before. So you go up one nothing. So I'll stay. I'll stay with the Rays. Rays, Rays in two. Oh, we both picked Rays in two. Ugh, sorry, Tampa. <laughs> well, I think it's. It's the only one I think we had in common. I think we were on the opposite ends of all the other ones. But I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with Rays in two. In some ways, I'm I'm fascinated to watch this series for all those reasons mentioned. And the Rays always use their roster in interesting ways, which is often unpopular and isn't always necessarily the most. Um, I don't want to say aesthetically because it's not about aesthetic. It's like it's different, and I always find it interesting. And I'm very curious to see how they try and deploy their lefties against this lineup, and how they set their lineup. We are going to get the answers to that one pretty soon because that's an early start tomorrow, right? One o'clock, I think, Eastern. Noon. Both of the next day. Noon? Okay, then. Noon. I, I know, I'm sure Cleveland fans are upset that it's noon on a Friday, but the alternative is what? Putting it on up against a different playoff game or against college football or against the NFL. Sometimes there are no right answers, and this is, I think, the best of all of the bad answers. But it'll be interesting to see because, you know, these are such short series, we're going to know the answers real quick. And then we can get back to talking about the big, the big boys, the big four, who are kind of waiting around to see who they're going to get. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. We will see you next week.